All right. Good morning, church. We are in uh, the story where we're actually going through and understanding God's timeline and the storyline of all of Scripture from the beginning to the end. If you're new at this church, I want to encourage you to jump into this right where we're at. Um, feel free to buy a, a storybook from us if you want for five bucks. If not, find one from somewhere else. And this week, read chapter four. Each week we, we read, and then we actually talk about stuff that we just read that previous week in the sermon afterwards. Um, if you've got uh, your story book, we, we encourage you to bring it and so that you can take notes in it right in the book itself so that by the end of this whole thing, you have all these notes compiled, which would be pretty cool. And today, if you uh, have your Bible, you can turn to Genesis chapter 50, starting in verse 15. If you've got your uh, storybook, you can go ahead and go to the beginning of chapter 3. On, actually, uh, not the beginning of chapter 3. Go to the end of chapter 3 on page 41. And 41, this is the end of the whole Joseph account that we just heard of. That, that video kind of sums up where we've been in the past couple of weeks, going from the beginning to the end of the book of Genesis. And so we're, we're focusing in on the very end of Genesis in the life of Joseph, and actually in the last scene that we see in this book. And, and this, this is happening after everything has taken place as far as Egypt and all of uh, the, the stuff that we just went through. And it says this in the last paragraph of page 41, if you've got your storybook. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you're to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins that, and the wrongs that they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of God of your father. When their message came to Joseph, Joseph wept. Why? Why did Joseph cry? Because after everything, after the forgiveness that they had, after all of that, Joseph is like, really? After all of that, you still, you think I was just waiting for dad to die before I brought down the hammer of my wrath against you? Now, full disclosure, being completely honest, that would, thought would cross my mind if I'm Joseph. Boom. Dad's dead. He doesn't care anymore. I'm taking them out one by one. Okay, that's just me. All right, we'll keep going. His brothers then came, top of 42, his brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. Pause. Again, that's poetic justice. They sold him into slavery and now they're at the end of the story and they're like, we're going to be your slaves. I'd say, deal. Boom, Ritz crackers and the little like swirly squeeze cheese right now. Aura, come on, let's make this happen. I would have no problem. But Joseph, he says this, but Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God, God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. What happens in Genesis chapter 50 verse 20, in that, that thing I just read, was a new filter happens in scripture where everything after this is judged by it. Up until this point, people who are following God, they know that God exists, they know that they're following him, but in Joseph's words right there, there's a new recognition that from here on out, read history differently. And he says it by the two parts of those statements. The one part of his statement says this, when he's talking to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me. But then he finishes it up by saying the other part of the dynamic, the other part of the reality, 
God meant it for good. The evil that you intended against me, God intended it for good. And all of a sudden, we see emerge a reality that there's two stories happening. There's the upper story. The upper story is, is, is what God is doing how God is orchestrating everything for his ultimate glory and our ultimate good. The lower story is the historical context. When we're reading through the Bible, we have to read through the historical context, the play-by-play of everyday life, what's going in this person's life up and down, and realize that that is the lower story. But these two fuse together. If we take a look just at the lower story in Joseph's life, we, we see this. We see that uh, the first part of his story is he's in a family that, as as already said, was super dysfunctional. Lots of things we could talk about with that. But we see that the first part of his story is that he's sold into the Arab slave trade. The the, the, the Ishmaelites, um, who, uh, the Ishmaelite slave trade was happening to that area. And instead of killing him, they throw him into a pit, right, in Dothan. Instead of killing him, they, they decide to have him sold and human trafficked into slavery. He's sold into human slavery, and, uh, but as soon as he gets into Egypt, he actually becomes a house slave in Potiphar's house, which if you're going to be a slave, this is probably the best form of slavery because it was, you were treated a little bit better, except for he had one major problem. The dude was hot, and Potiphar's wife noticed how hot he was. I mean, the Bible says that he was handsome and well-built. So he must work out. So he was looking hot and she wanted him. But Joseph was like, how could I possibly betray Potiphar? How could I possibly betray my God? And so he keeps on rejecting her, getting out of the room if she's in the room. And eventually she gets tired of being rejected and she falsely accuses him of rape. You can falsely accuse people of a lot of things and it's bad. That's really bad. And because of that, he does prison time. Joseph is now doing prison time, and he's in jail for two years. Okay, he's 17 years old when this happens. He's in prison now for two years, and he would have been there longer if it wasn't for the fact that it comes up to light that this guy is able to accurately read people's dreams and tell them what they mean. I had the weirdest dream last night about Pastor Josh, that he was like in major, like there was something that happened that was really, really, really bad to him. And I woke up thinking that it was real. It freaked me out. I would love for someone to interpret that dream. This guy actually is accurately interpreting people's dreams. Have you ever had dreams that you just wish you knew what the meaning was? Joseph could do that. And, all, and it was something that was not just him. It was a gift from God. Pharaoh hears about it. And he says, I need, you to understand, I need you to help me understand the crazy dream that I had. And he rightly explains Pharaoh's dreams. He says this. This is what your dream means. We as a country are going to have seven years of prosperity. I mean, it's going to be epic. We're going to have so much harvest. We're not going to know what to do with it. And just when everyone else around us is thinking we have arrived, let's start living large, all of a sudden, bam, seven years of drought are going to happen. And it's not going to devastate just Egypt. It's going to devastate everyone. And so what we need to start doing, he says, Pharaoh, here's the dream. You can do with it what you want. But my challenge to you, my encouragement to you is to find someone smart who could actually manage the fact that we need to start saving up because we're going to be hitting a really tough, dire time. And the Pharaoh's like, boom, exactly, let's do that. You're the guy. So he hires, he hires him as the Egyptian food distribu- distribution director. Now, if you're on a, more, a normal, like, um, normally like in a country, if you're like the food distribution director, that's not a big deal. But if your whole country is starving to death, and the whole region around you is starving to death. This is a massively important 
role. And this role is so important that it says that Joseph became the most powerful person in Egypt, powerful only under the Pharaoh. He was second in command, and that takes place. And at the end of his story, we see that there's this massive reunion that takes place between him and his betraying brothers. Pretty crazy uh, lower story for Joseph's life. In Joseph's lower story, we see that there's ups and downs, there's ins and there's outs, but the lower story helps us know what happens. Now here's the thing, this lower story, um, we see that Joseph says that his brothers, the guys who betrayed him back in the beginning, he said that the evil that you did the evil you did was meant to harm me. It wasn't, you didn't, you didn't accidentally sell me into slavery, okay? I knew that was intentional. That word for evil is used 633 times in the Bible, and it's the word ra'ah, which is wickedness. It's not just you're doing something naughty. It's like the thing that you're doing is actually the seeds of destruction. Like human, human suffering happens because of this bad choice that you have made. You intended to harm me, to produce trouble, harm, distress, misery, or sadness. And that is like all over this situation. And we look in the scriptures and we can see that human suffering comes from that. We have ra'ah all over us. Like we have suffering that comes from others. Joseph totally can communicate about suffering that was by the hand of his brothers. In scripture, sometimes we see that our suffering comes by our own decisions where we're shooting ourselves in the foot. Our suffering also can sometimes not only come from us being the victim of someone else or us victimizing others, but it can come from our enemy. The, the fact that Satan is, is someone who's bent, bound, and determined on destroying us by distancing us from God, discouraging us, depressing us, distracting us, ultimately destroying us. That's Satan's job. First, first Peter talks about this. Peter says that, that um, be alert and sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And so we see this. And so when we're looking at the lower story, we can recognize, yeah, this has got lots of suffering in it. This has got lots of injustice in it. You, you, throughout this whole point, you should be someone who's saying, where is God in all of this? But that's where we get to the fact that the lower story is not the only story there's also the upper story. This is the upper story in, in Joseph's life. Where did it go? Over here. Joseph's life also has the upper story because in this story, we recognize that God is doing something. The lower story is our historical context. The upper story is what God is up to in the midst of all of it. And in, in this story, we recognize that God is working in every character's life. He's working in Joseph's life for sure but he's also working in the mistake, the massive fail, the sin of his brothers. He's working in their lives. He's working in the life of Jacob, who doesn't see his son for decades thinking that he's dead. I've been told that you can get over a lot of things, but if you have a, a child that dies, that is one of the things you never, ever get over, and Jacob is living through that. So God is working through that in Jacob's life. God's working through the life of Pharaoh as well. God, on, on the upper level of the story, God is working through every person. But in Joseph, one of the things that we see is that he's helping Joseph understand the nature of prayer. Because if you're Joseph, you're praying for liberation. You're praying for freedom. I, I've talked about this before, but the, that town that, that he's chucked into that pit is called Dothan. And, and Dothan was this tiny little town. And, and he gets chucked into that pit. And you got to imagine Joseph's praying, God, bring me back to my dad. God, bring, just free me. God, help me not to die. God, God, just get me out of this pit. Bring me back home. 
And God doesn't bring him back home. God allows him to go into being, sold, being human trafficked. And Liam Neeson is not coming after him. He's solo on this one. And he's all by himself. His prayers are going unanswered. In Dothan, hundreds of years later, you have Elisha. Elisha in the same town, same town of Dothan. The Syrian armies are coming in to take out Elisha. And, and Elisha offers up a prayer, God, rescue me. God sends armies of angels. And he's rescued. Two men, same town, same God. Which is the good God? Which God is good in the midst of suffering? The God of Joseph or the God of Elisha? Both. They're the same. Joseph is learning in the midst of this, there are prayers that are going unanswered. Where are you, God? Perhaps prayer is not simply a Santa Claus list to the Almighty, but is instead in the midst of the circumstances of my lower story, I'm asking for God to give me a vantage point of the upper story. What are you doing? Help me clutch onto you, knowing that you are at work in the midst of the circumstances I can't rationalize. Not only that, he's able to see that in the midst of all this, in the prison time and everything else, the reality of God's presence. His prayers are not being answered to go home, that's for sure, but we see something different happening. I, I, I as many times as I've read Genesis, I've never seen this, that this phrase was reoccurring. But if you look uh, right on, on page 31, um, on, at number one right there, it says this. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. Let's read this next part together. The Lord was with Joseph. That phrase surfaces again on the next page in the next chapter or when he's in the next part of the passage where he's in prison. It says, but while he was in the prison, the Lord was with him. Not only is Joseph realizing the nature of prayer, God just doesn't, you know, he's just, I can't wait to answer what you're saying. Just tell me what it is and I'll do it. But on top of that, the fact that, that prayer sometimes is just us calling for God to help us understand what he's doing on the upper level of the story, but also the nature of God's presence the reality of it, I'm in the darkest points, I am still with you. I have not left you. You are not alone. We also see that when we get to the point here where um, we have the, him setting himself up as the Egyptian or being set up as the Egyptian food distribution director, we see the partial fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. As the video said, and as we talked about last week, God promised Abraham that he was going to be blessed but that that wasn't the end of the sentence. God says, I'm going to bless you and you're going to what? Be a blessing. To who? To your own people? No, to all peoples of the world. And, this, and we see that ultimately satisfied in Jesus, but this is the cool thing. We see it initially and partially satisfied in Joseph and a descendant of Abraham. Now he's in a place where all of a sudden the entire world is coming to Egypt because nobody had the foresight that there's after seven years of good, that there's gonna be seven years of devastation, except for Joseph, except for Egypt, and now the whole world is coming into Egypt. They're having this massive festival of grain. It's like the, the, the origin story of the corn festival. It's amazing. People are having hot dogs on the sick. It's phenomenal. And that's all there. And that's it's this huge, huge thing. And in the process of that, there's millions that are rescued, saved because of this event that took place in Joseph's life. And eventually at the end of the story, we see a family restoration story that when I was reading it this week brought me to tears. Because I was just blown away with like, oh my gosh, 
Look what you did. Look what you did, God. So when we look at this and we recognize the two parts of the story, all of a sudden it starts to make more sense about Romans 8.28 where it says that God works, he's able to work all things for the good of those who love him. He's actually able to engage the reality that he is sovereign over every detail in history and that in our free choosing to rebel against him and hurt one another, that does not stop him. In fact, another way of putting that would be this. When we're looking at the lower story, we're seeing the evil and painful events of life. But because we know about the upper story, we're able to see that they are not able to derail God's plan of ultimate good. They are not able to, whatever's happened in your life, that was not able, as painful and powerful and poignant as it was, was not able to derail God's good and ultimate plan. Now, if you adopt this reality, the fact that there's more than meets the eye, right? More than just this, but as a follower of Jesus, there's this and there's this. That is a game changer for your world. And the first way it changes you is you have a better way to deal with the past. You actually have a better way to deal with your own past. You actually could be someone who can see the upper story in the timeline of your lower story. That, that you can take a look at that. And this is something that's unique to Christianity. Because um, within, let's just, like Hinduism, Hinduism will look back on the timeline of their life. But just think about the timeline of your life, all the ups and downs. The death, divorce, disease difficulty, the ups, the, the promotions, the marriages, the wonderful mo- moments, all that, all that put together. A Hindu will look back and see the suffering points as saying, those came because of me. It's my fault. And if I didn't do it in this life, I must have done something in my previous life. It's karma. And so the best thing I can do is try to be as good as I can be so that in my next life I can have less suffering. A Buddhist would say, no, that's, that's ridiculous. There is no such thing as suffering. Suffering is an illusion just like we are an illusion. The best thing we could do, recognizing that we're an illusion and rec- recognizing that suffering comes from desire, desire is evil, is to desire nothing. Don't desire love. Don't desire people. Don't desire children. Don't desire anything that can, that can be something you would desire leads to suffering. So detach yourself from all individuality and all, indivi- and, and all love and all affections. And then you'll have less suffering. In Islam, you have the fact that, that if you have suffering, if you're looking back on your lower story and you're seeing suffering, it's simply because Allah wills it. In atheism, Richard Dawkins points out um, in his book, um, I, I don't have the name of the book, I think it's A Slow River Out of Eden, Um, famed atheist Richard Dawkins in talking about the astronomical amount of suffering in this world. He says, you know, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect. If there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. See, I just go, Richard, you're wrong. And you're wrong because when I look back on the timeline of life, my life and everyone else's, I recognize that there is injustice. There is unfair things that happen. Part of suffering is absolutely unfair and unjust. When I look back on my life and I see the ups and downs, it's not an illusion. This is real pain. But it's, it's not just simply karma. There's something else going on here. 
And this is where, as a Christian, I can recognize that there is both this lower story and this upper story. It's bouncing. And that's something that, that I have an opportunity to actually look back and see God's hand in it. To actually look back. I want to challenge you to do this today. At some point today, map out your life. From as er, your earliest memory on. And just timeline it. The ups and the downs. Not just the highlight reel, but the, the terrible things too. Map it out. And I bet you you're going to find God's fingerprints all over it. I mean, we could do this. As Christians, we recognize, we can see that it was more than just this. There's also this. Let me give you a really ridiculous one, and that's this. I am a pastor at Manuka Bible Church, and I love being a pastor at Manuka Bible Church. I'm so grateful to be your pastor. I'm really hoping you're grateful that I'm your pastor. We'll talk about that later. The truth is, is that I, I'm so happy that this is where I'm at, but I would not be at Manuka Bible Church if it wasn't for Harv Russell. Harv Russell had a meeting at Moody Bible Institute with Julie and I talking about this wondrous land called Manuka and this place called Manuka Bible Church. And I would not have had that meeting with Harv Russell at Moody Bible Institute if I didn't go to Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. And I wouldn't go to, I would not have gone to Moody Bible Institute in Chicago if my parents hadn't told me in Los Angeles where I was living, there's no way that we could possibly afford to send you to the school that you want to go to, to train you for ministry. I wanted to go to Biola. My parents said, we do not have the funds. We are, there's no way. And the reason that my parents didn't have the funds was because my dad was a pastor of a small church. And he had major debt that came from the grad school and, and my mom's college education when they got married really young. And the reason that they had so much debt from that was because my dad's dad could not help out at all in his education. And the reason that my grandpa couldn't help my dad out in his education was because he didn't make a lot of money. He was a GE factory worker. And the reason he was a GE factory worker was because he got a certain skill set taught to him while he served in World War II that equipped him to move to Ontario, California and go to the plant in Ontario, California of General Electric. And the reason that he was in World War II was because on December 7th, 1941, Japanese planes bombed Pearl Harbor. I would not be here if it was not for Japanese planes bombing Pearl Harbor. So Minooka Bible Church, even Pearl Harbor happened for you. <laughs> the truth is that when you look through any point in your history, you can say there's millions, there's millions of things. You go, oh my gosh, there's so many devastating realities all throughout life. This must just be bad. This must just be suffering. This must just be the end. And scripture says, no. We have a God who's saying, this is, it's not any one of these points of devastation and suffering are not the end of the story. There's another story happening and it's God's glory and God's work that he's actually working in and through each and every detail. We have a better way to deal with our past. Do you have regret from your past? In Christ, you can know that even that regret, even your failure was not the end of the story and it was not devoid of the fact that God was in fact even working in and through that. You have suffering. You have the reality that God is working in and through that. Dr. Francis Collins, I've mentioned him before, the guy who was the head of the Human Genome Project uh, who mapped out DNA. He was an atheist and he became a Christian because of what he was seeing and just the amazing reality of the fact that this just makes so much more sense with God as a creator. Um, when people who were equally atheistic and skeptical would ask, talk to him and say, yeah, but I don't understand how you could possibly believe in a God who allows suffering 
How could a good God allow suffering? I mean, because there's things that you can say, oh yeah, God works that out for good because there's a good, happy ending to the story. But what about the people who die in their suffering? What about Christians who die in their suffering? Where's the happy ending there? And Dr. Collins said, yeah, it's hard for me to wrap my brain around. But I can tell you one personal story where that is the reality. He says, I personally have experienced very little suffering. But my daughter, when she was in college, was raped in her college dorm room by someone who made the decision to act out against my daughter, victimizing her and changing her life forever. Where was God there? It's very easy for me to wish that God would have intervened, but he didn't. And it'd be very difficult for you or I to say, God's going to work that out for good. But my daughter would tell you that he has. Has that devastated her, changed her whole life? Always traumatic? Absolutely. You don't get over that. But he says that she's actually someone who's seen God illuminate to her that that point on the timeline was not the end of the story and that this good God had something more in store for her in and through that. See the upper story in the timeline of your lower story. You have a better way to deal with your past. Secondly, you have a better way to plan for your future. Because you're a Christian, you have a different reality and a different future so you can plan accordingly. Uh, Joseph is, is in the midst of this and we get the sense all the way through his account of his lower story is that he's cognizant of the fact that God is at work with that reality, that leads him to take bold steps. He's not just a superhuman who's just able to just super calm, handle precarious situations. He understands he is not alone in prison. He's not alone in this scenario, and he's not alone in his leadership. That God is actually right there with him. And with that reality of the fact that God has an upper story happening simultaneously with the difficult and stressful scenarios he's walking through, he can make bold steps knowing God is assisting him. 2,000 years after that, Jesus was in the garden. 2,000 years after Joseph, Jesus is in the garden. And the stress from recognizing he's about to go on the cross, the stress from recognizing that he's going to be separated, that, that, that the separation of the Father or the, 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 the whole concept of owning the sins that he never committed was so, so great that the blood vessels in his skin break and he starts to sweat blood. And yet he says, but not my will, but yours be done. In the midst of the circumstances, he is able to own the higher view of the, the, the glory and the plan of the Heavenly Father and submit to it. And 2,000 years later, you and I are right here. 2,000 years later, we're not people who just go to school or go to work or raise families or go to grocery stores. There's more than this. We can actually be the type of person that can say, because I look back and I see all of the details of my life, God has worked through another story of his glory. I can actually say from here on forward, I can make plans for my future in accordance with that. I can actually do this. I can keep the upper story in the center of my radar when making the decisions affecting my future lower story. I can actually say this. Because I know that in my past, 
everything that I was seeing wasn't the only thing that was there, but God was at work. I can actually say with my future decisions, the big decisions on what, what school do I go to, on, on who do I marry, on, what, on the way that I invest my money, on the way that I invest my life, I can make bold decisions knowing God is at work because I know that this upper story is happening. It's way easier to look on your past and see God's fingerprints than it is in your present or your future. But as a person of faith, you can know that God is at work and that you can actually make those bold statements and bold decisions in the grace that he gives you to do so. And Paul talks about this. He says this in in Colossians. He says, since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on what? Things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Do not plan for your future built and based just on the lower part of your story. How much am I going to earn? What's the school system like? What are the perks? That stuff dies on the vine as far as legacy, as far as God's, God's plan for you. God's plan is to say, I'm going to take those, you know, salary, that stuff is great, but my ultimate future decisions are built and based on the boldness knowing God is at work and I want to glorify him. If you're 50 years old, you're in your, your 30s, 40s, and 50s, and you're like, I just became a Christian, or I've been a Christian for a long time, but I just kind of feel like I'm hovering. Stop hovering. Step up and step into following God boldly. And you can actually make decisions to do so. If you're, if you're retiring, you're not done. You've got a second life right now where you actually need to step up and step in in a more significant way. Be bold. If you're in junior high and high school, you are about to make some of the biggest decisions of your life. Do not merely make them for this level of payoff. Make them for this. Set your heart on things above, not on earthly things. See, when we have an upper view and a lower view, we have a better way to deal with our past. We have a better way to plan for our future. And we have a better way of being present in our present we can actually actually do that in a way that we can, we can come in and take a page from Joseph and say, in my present, I am going to suffer. I'm going to experience suffering, but as a Christian, I can do so radically differently than anyone else around me. I may suffer just as much as my neighbor who doesn't believe in God, maybe more, but I'm gonna suffer differently. I can suffer well. I can actually recognize that this has always been something that has included suffering. And to be honest, some of the times that God has used, used most of my life, some of the events that have, God has used most of my life were not the high points, but the most difficult points where I had to clutch onto him. The things that have make you wise and, and someone who, who's got in, insight that can assist other people didn't come from when you were winning, when you were knocking it out of the park. Oftentimes they came when everything was falling apart and you realized you weren't alone because he was working in and through even that. Suffer well. And again, we have to ask the question of like, yeah, but God, there's things that I can't reconcile. Like when somebody loses a kid, when someone dies prematurely, and it just like, when, 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 when the disease kicks in, or I'm unjustly laid off, where I am picked on and bullied and there's nothing that I can do about it. What do you do with that, God? Because again, what if I get to the end of my life and that's the end of my life? I ended my life in suffering. How does that work out for the good? Tim Keller, um, I, and I've shared this story with you, I believe, before, but I, it just, it's so helpful to me. 
He talked about how he always had a hard time with Romans 8, 28, that God works all things for the good of those who love him. He says, because he would think about some of those rape, murder, disease, death. How can you work those things out for good, especially when you die in those things? And he said this. He said, I never got it until this one night I had this terrible, terrible nightmare. I had this terrible, terrible nightmare. And the nightmare was I was away from home and some intruders broke into our house and they brutally murdered my wife and my daughters. And even though in my dream I wasn't in the building, I was watching it play out in real time, all of the gory details, and I could do nothing about it. And it was one of those dreams where you start crying in your dream and you wake up crying. Have you ever had one of those dreams? And as he's waking up, the tears are coming down his face and it's still palpable. It is still real until the spell is broken. When he hears downstairs, his wife and his daughter's voices talking over breakfast. And then he just realizes it was just a dream. And he sprints downstairs. He could have broken a hip, but he sprints downstairs. And when he gets downstairs, he just takes them and he gets around and just bear hugs them all and just like holds them as tight as he possibly could. They're probably thinking, you need to be medicated. What is wrong with you? But he didn't care. He was just like, and he's crying and he's holding them so tightly. And he said, you know what? If I never had that dream, I would have gone downstairs and, and it would have been totally different. It would have been blasé because of the nightmare. That moment was so much more precious of holding on to my dear loved ones, realizing the nightmare is over and you are with me now. A Christian believes in this life there will be suffering, but we can suffer well because we know that this is not the end of the story. It's not the entire story, but it's certainly not even the end of the story because what God is doing is ultimately going to lead to a point where each one of us, if you're in Christ, will wake up and realize that the nightmare of sin and its devastation, Jesus through the cross has undone the effects of that and we can come to our reality that the nightmare is over and the joy from that moment, no more brokenness, no more broken relationships, No more anxiety caused by our sin or the sin of others, just his precious salvation. We get to enjoy the way life was intended to be. And that gives us the ability in the midst of this to suffer well. Finally, it gives us the ability to forgive fully. You know, each one of us, we've got things that we need to forgive. Certainly, I I know I do. The end of this account, just reading it one more time, blows my mind because of the fact that Joseph should not have forgiven his brothers. How in the world could he do that? But Joseph said to them, page 42, but Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. How does that happen? The only way that happens, the only way anyone can forgive and do more than just merely like, fine, whatever, uh, it's it's over. It's done, I'm putting it behind me. The only way a person can forgive fully is recognizing that even the evil that has been done to us was not the end of the story, that even God was working in and through that for his glory and for our good. And if you know that, you can look at that person who intended to harm you intended evil against you and can say, 
I am forgiving fully because I realize God's got more at play than what just happened between you and me. And if you're like, I can't do that, and that's when we pray. Like, how should I pray? When his disciples asked Jesus that, he said, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How do we pray? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What we're asking God to do is to help us live a heavenly and eternal mindset in the lower story of our life. To ask him to take all the details that are going on and help us realize that's not all that's happening, but that we can actually in our suffering live on earth as, well, as it is in heaven. In our forgiveness, we can, say, we can live out and actually forgive people on earth as we've been forgiven in heaven. Through whatever we go through, we can actually step into that reality poignantly and powerfully and your whole world will be changed simply because you're following this Jesus who accomplished it all for us. The one who entered into our suffering, bore our suffering, and ultimately gives us rescue from our suffering. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you give us not the capacity to be smarter people, not even the capacity to be strong, um, stronger people in, in our ability to, to navigate um, tough times and just be tougher souls, but that we actually are people who realize that there's certain things that are just so painful and so difficult we can't manage them, that we can actually surrender to you. Lord, when we, we go through suffering sometimes, God, that is the, the very thing that keeps us feeling alone. I pray that you remind us of your faithfulness that there's not a moment in this world, God, where you have let us go, go and you, you're, we're out of control, out of your control, that your sovereignty and your grace rescues us. Lord, I thank you that through the cross, we know that you are someone has communicated boldly to us of your love. And there's not one bit of our suffering that separates us from your love. And God, in your resurrection, you remind us that everything will be right in the end. God, as we're walking through the lower part of our story, help our hearts to be set on things above where you are, working, managing, navigating, loving, rescuing, redeeming, restoring, and sometimes just holding us through the storm. Lord, I pray that that leads to our repentance, that we turn our hearts completely to you, that we don't just bask in your grace, but we allow your grace to prompt and throttle us into a faith-filled life of following your lead and your faithfulness. And Jesus, we'll give you thanks for that. Lord, right now, we lift up to you um, our offering, our tithes and our offerings, God, and we pray that you help this be something that is a bold step into trusting you a bold step into watching you work through us. A bold way, God, that we can engage the upper story of what you're doing in this community and this world through your gospel. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you so much. It's in your name we pray. Amen.